welcome to the October edition of my book club. This month we read Daniel Everett's Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, Life and Language in the Amazonian Jungle. And this is a very interesting book. It's a memoir of the famed linguist and anthropologist Daniel Everett and his journey into the Piraha tribe in the Amazonian region of Brazil. I think this is a very interesting book for me, in part because Daniel Everett is a very accomplished linguist and language learner. He has to go into this tribe where people don't speak any language he has in common and learn their language. As it turns out, it's one of the most unusual and perhaps difficult to learn of all the languages on earth. There's only been a handful of people who have learned it to any extent who are outside of the tribe themselves. And he is one of the very few people who speaks it fluently who is not from that tribe. There's also, I think, a story here about the differences in, in cultures that very often we see our lives and our worlds within the strata of our own cultures. So we have a hard time really stepping outside of that and seeing, well, how could things be different? And so I found this book very interesting because the Pirahant tribe have such a different culture from the modern Western ones that we tend to live in these days. And so I found his real exploration of that culture and the implications of those ideas to open up my own mind to how many ways there are things that I take for granted that it has to be seen in that way. And I'm sure that Daniel Everett himself experiences that a thousand times as deep uh, in his own experiences living with these people. Um, and the final thing that I think was interesting about this book is a little bit about perhaps the culture or ideas in academia, mainly that his relationship with the Pirahan, his discovery of perhaps some unusual features of their culture and their language put him in stark opposition to some of the linguistic community, which to this day has resulted in some bitter feuds. So you can see in this book not only an anthropological survey of a distant and perhaps exotic culture, but also one that exists in our own world, that of academia and that of the war of ideas. So in this brief recording, it's going to be cut into two parts. I'm going to start by just basically summarizing the book. So if you didn't get a chance to read it, you can sort of get a really brief overview so you'll know kind of what we're talking about. And then I'm going to talk about what I feel are the big ideas of the book. Now, normally I would invite a guest on to discuss this topic, but this time I want to try something a little different and just share you what I felt the big ideas were uh, myself. So obviously I'm looking for feedback on this format. Do you like it? Would you prefer having the guest for the conversation? Be, be free to weigh in and let me know what you think. So let's start with the summary of the book. So it starts off with him being a Christian missionary. And he works with a linguistic institute that their basic, their main method of missionary work is to translate the Bible into that language, the indigenous language of which, you know, he is trying to learn that. So his main goal at the start is to sort of learn linguistics with the practical application of eventually getting a translated version of the Bible, which this particular branch of missionary uh, missionaries feel is the best vehicle for conversion. So if you can just con translate the Bible, then it will uh, basically convert itself. So his first goal is to go there and learn this language. This is a long-term goal, so he's not directly trying to proselytize at this point, but he needs to learn the language. And his first inroads into this culture, he realizes how different they are and how 
difficult perhaps his mission is going to be. This is a culture that has basically resisted westernization, conversion to Catholicism, conversion to uh, Christianity for hundreds of years. So it's a definitely an interesting situation because he's going into this aware of how difficult it is. So he actually goes with his wife and his children. And even from the beginning, there's difficulties. His wife and his daughter nearly die from malaria. And he's, you know, there's a very harrowing chapter where he's trying to take them to a medical center. And he's not dealing only with the seeming nonchalance of the Piraha themselves, but many of the Brazilians who live in that era, uh, area are also somewhat indifferent to his plight, which is, you know, causing him a lot of uh, problems. And he only later learns that part of the reason that, you know, he's experiencing such indifference is that what he's experiencing is major tragedy is just an everyday event that these people live very hard lives and many of them are dying of illness quite frequently and they accept their fate with a certain stoicism that perhaps he had to uh, really experience the culture longer to learn. Later, uh, he gets in a dangerous situation where some of the Paraha tribes members, after having some alcohol, consider killing him even, uh, being provoked by some riverboat merchants that suggest, you know, if you get rid of this uh, outsider, maybe we can uh, do some business together. And I think this is also a kind of a real window into Daniel Everett's compassion for these people because obviously if someone tried to kill me and we're talking about it nonchalantly, I don't think I would be so quick to forgive them. And he has learned, you know, that many of these people that had threatened him are now some of his best friends. So I think this really shows his depth of compassion and also how willing he was to go in and, and really learn the culture and these people, even when sometimes making missteps culturally could have really dire consequences. So eventually over the years, he, he does learn their language, which is very difficult. It's something, again, few outsiders have done and develops a real deep bond with these people. He really understands them and sees how they see the world. And one of the things that I found interesting is that his attempts at conversion are ultimately a failure. He keeps trying to introduce them to Christianity and suggest why it would be important. And it's not as if they're persuaded they aren't persuaded at all. They think his whole religion is ridiculous and they find his reasons for believing it ridiculous. And eventually he comes to a very strong, what he calls a cultural principle of these people, uh, the immediacy of experience principle. Basically that it's in his view that the reason that conversion efforts have failed and the reason perhaps for some of the unique linguistic features of these people is that they have a real cultural priority on things that are immediately accessible either through uh, your immediate experience or someone's first-hand knowledge, meaning that it's coming from something that they personally experienced that they are now telling you about. Uh, in other words, there is no mythology in this culture. There's no creation myths. There's no origin stories. There's no history. There's no, you know, eons ago, our people came from here and did this and that. There's also no um, there's no real possibility of conversion to Christianity because those all depend on stories and ideas that uh, Daniel Everett had not personally witnessed, things that he had read about that he had believed in. So they simply wouldn't take him on his word for it because he had not witnessed these events in person. And so this is a very interesting cultural property. He says that it perme uh, permeates so much of their life. For instance... The Piraha 
often don't keep many tools and keep things that last for a long time because they're not really that concerned with maintaining things for the future. Everything is connected with the immediate moment, which of course in the world we live, which is highly abstracted and involves with dealing things like money and institutions and government and all these invisible things that are quite disconnected from experience. This is certainly a very alien way of viewing the world. Now this shouldn't be to imply that the Piraha are, you know, perfect scientists or perfectly uh, attached to everything as is immediately visible. They do seem by our own ideas to have many superstitions and many beliefs that we cannot really justify with our empirical mindset. But again, this often comes from a firsthand perspective. So most of the people in the tribe can recount seeing spirits directly or interacting with supernatural forces in that way. So for them, the supernatural and the mythological are not stories that are passed down, but components of their direct experience. So this uniqueness of their culture, which results in some perhaps unique features of their language, in particular, uh, throughout his study, Daniel believes that the Piraha language, in particular its grammar, may be unique in the world, lacking what are called embedded clauses. So an embedded clause is basically a partial sentence which fits inside of another sentence, and it's part of a bigger idea called recursion. So an example of that could be, um, you could say, that man is tall, and you could say, I gave him the hat. You could say, also, I gave the tall man the hat. So in this sense, I'm taking two ideas and embedding one in the other. I'm embedding the idea of giving someone a hat, and then I'm also embedding a description of the man that he's tall in this discussion. And according to Everett, this is not how the Paraha language works, and that the only thing you can do is kind of refer to these two things in sequence. So you can say, I gave the man the hat, the man is tall, they are the same thing. And so this may sound like a bit of a trivial observation, and in some ways, perhaps it is. It's not perhaps the important revelation that uh, it, it often seems to be. However, this particular feature attacked an idea in Chomsky and linguistics, this is Noam Chomsky, one of the founders of sort of modern linguistics. His idea was that there's this universal grammar, there's this structure that is the same that underlies all languages. And one of those core ideas in, in some formulations was recursion. So the idea that there was a language that lacked this feature seemed to be a possible disproof of this hypothesis. Now, interestingly, this debate kind of flew into a fury, and then now it's sort of resolved with both sides sort of saying that maybe the point doesn't matter. Um, so I'm not sure whether there is a real uh, conclusion to be drawn about whether this refutes Chomskyan linguistics or whether this is just some little quirk that needs to be fit into that broader schema, or if it is just a quirk that needs to be brought in the schema, what does Chomskyan linguistics actually say? I'm not a linguist. I won't pretend to weigh in on this debate with any authority, but I do think that it was an interesting section of the book because it describes sort of how these things are coming to be. Now, this uh, particular facet, this uh, linguistic battle actually led to another sort of series of conflicts in his life that uh, basically, because of the sort of strong charge this was setting him, Daniel Everett, in opposition to a lot of the linguistic orthodoxy. This resulted in a lot of bitter feuds where people were attacking him, saying that he was, you know, a charlatan, that he was 
had scientific malpractice and even that he was a racist and that his views of their language resulted from him having a particularly racist ideology. Now, I think if you read this book and you, you read the, the respect that he has for these people, that last charge seems a little bit harder to sink in. However, it is something that has held some weight because of his previous missionary past, even though he is no longer a missionary. Um, that has also prevented him from continuing to see the Piraha. The Brazilian government has prevented him from going forward with there. So as currently it stands, to the best of my understanding, he is cut off from these people that he originally was studying because perhaps of the backlash of this sort of linguistic feud that he had in academia. One of the things I think most profound about the book is that he went to the Piraha originally to convert them to Christianity, and he ended up being converted himself, that their own cultural outlook converted him to becoming essentially an atheist, and he gave up his religion, which had some pretty dramatic consequences for him as well, including a, the breakup of his family, which he was something he was trying to avoid. So we can look at Daniel Everett's life, and in particular his journey with the Piraha through multiple lenses. And so that's what I want to talk about right now, because I think sometimes reading a book like this, particularly where it's a lot of stories and the implications for someone who wants to think about how this would improve their lives or maybe not always is clear. So I want to talk about some of those ideas right now. The first I want to talk about is language learning, because I think anyone who wants to learn a language can learn a lot from Daniel Everett's case. Clearly learning the Piraha is an incredible accomplishment. In language learning, it's something that's been accomplished by few people and is fraught with many difficulties. There's no language in common. You don't have the ability to just pick up a book, you know, Piraha 101 and just read through it. Um, and also there is the difficulties of living in the jungle and, and having to deal with cultural differences and perhaps even situations where the people who are trying to teach you are not being as helpful or straightforward as you'd like. So I, for one, am interested in learning languages, as I've done in my own projects. And so I think learning from Daniel Everett's case is really what would be the extreme of that language learning philosophy and what can we learn from it. So in particular, I feel like I, I teased out a few lessons from language learning from his stories. I feel like Everett's approach is pragmatic as opposed to dogmatic, which is interesting because his background in this uh, what's called monolingual fieldwork, this method of learning the language, does have a certain kind of orthodoxy to it. It's based on the idea that uh, one should learn, let's say, the indigenous language before learning the colonial language. So, for instance, learning an indigenous language in Mexico before learning Spanish. It's based on the idea that one should not consult translation and one should work directly 100% in the language which Daniel Everett himself resists. And he says, you know what, if I have the ability to look through other materials that might provide hints of what I do, I go for it. And so I really appreciated his approach because it was not based on this idea of a kind of compelling theory that everything in language learning has to fit into this framework. Rather, it was, let's figure out what works and let's use every resource at our disposal. And that's something that I really resonated with in my own language learning. And I feel like it's a useful idea to hold up to. Some other ideas that I took from his own language learning practice, be immersed in the culture you're learning from. So clearly it is not enough to just study in this abstracted, removed place from the culture. 
He's living with these people. He's interacting with them all the time. And very often he's discovering that the language and the culture are not so separate. Another idea is to be unafraid to fail and have a sense of humor. Now, this is something that comes across a little bit in the book, but I think it comes across very strongly in a video I saw of him practicing this monolingual fieldwork, where he basically shows his fearlessness at trying out ideas of pronouncing things wrong, making mistakes. And often he recounts stories where people will, for instance, teach him a word in a wrong way so that it's funny for them, or uh, basically they will deny him access perhaps to certain sets of speakers so he isn't able to get the uh, explanation he can get that he would like to have. So I think this basic fearlessness and just having a sense of humor in yourself and not taking it too seriously and, you, you know, hey, I'm going to make mistakes and keep making mistakes and make mistakes, 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 mistakes for years and years and years until I get to a level where I'm really proficient just really epitomizes the whole aspect towards language learning that I think successful language learners have, that they really embrace that ability to make mistakes and to take themselves lightly. Finally, you can see one of his major methods, particularly in this case, because there's not a lot of established theory and grammar and, and ideas about what is correct paraha, is that he is making hypotheses, he's making theories about how the language works, and then he's testing, testing, testing them with actual people. So he's, hey, you know what, can I say this? Well, what if I said this? Does this sound right? What if I said this? And he's working that to form his understanding of not only their grammar, but their pronunciation, vocabulary, etc. And I think one of the big lessons you can see from his experience is don't assume preconceptions about how things must be will necessarily hold. Now, obviously, Paraha is a bit of an extreme case, but I myself have found this with learning languages that um, you can often get stuck in the idea of thinking of things that they have to be the way that your native language is and getting frustrated or trying to force them to be like that when they're not. And so I think you need to really open up to the idea that not only can languages differ in ways that you don't expect, but they can also differ in ways that perhaps you can't expect. So it's ways that you are maybe not expecting. And so you really have to have this open mind that not only could you be wrong, but your whole structure of how these things are set up could be wrong. And the only way to go through it is to continue to test and have experiments. So this is the ideas I learned about from language learning. The second idea I want to talk about is the value of anthropology. So here we see a real uh, anthropological insight into how the Paraha culture is set up. Now, obviously, reading a book like this is grossly inferior to actually experiencing it. But given that most of us are probably not going to have the ability to go to the far outer reaches of the Amazonian jungle and live with a perhaps somewhat hostile or indifferent tribe of people who, you know, that's just not going to be an option for most people. Most people don't even have the ability to travel to another modern culture for too, too long to really get that cultural immersion. Therefore, I think this book can fill in a gap because even though you don't have the same richness or depth as you would, let's say, in a experience of uh, living in another country or living in another city or country um, in a different language, you also have the benefit that this is a very different culture. So you can see kind of the extremes. My feeling is that many of the cultures that we live in today, whether it's 
Canada where I live or China or Europe or Australia or Brazil, they are different, obviously, but there's so many cross minglings, so many mixtures of ideas and, and theories and words and, and even just the idea that we both live in sort of modern industrialized uh, societies. All of these things create an, a situation where cultures are much more homogenized than they would otherwise be. So it can lead to the impression that there's certain, let's say, human universals, which perhaps they're actually contingent facts. They're not actually parts of our deep, inherent nature, but parts of how cultures have adapted to our shared environment or the shared challenges of living, let's say, in cities and having agriculture and doing those sorts of things. So I think there's an intellectual component to reading books like this and being exposed to perhaps different ways of living or different types of cultures, even if they're quite different or quite exotic from our own. But I think there's also a benefit from seeing alternative value systems. One of the things I've found uh, in my own personal development, my own self-improvement, is that you can often get in what I'll call a value trap. And a value trap is where your own values, because they're invisible and because you cannot reflect on them, lead you into situations where there's contradictions, where there are conflicts and paradoxes and situations where you believe one thing, but you also believe another thing. And those two things are maybe incompatible or they create these frictions in particular contexts and you are unable to resolve them. And so I think there's definitely a value to holding values. I wouldn't say that we should just all become relativists and that nothing really matters. But I do also think there's a benefit in being able to see one's own values. So even if you believe that the way you live is the right way to live, I think it's useful to see that as a system of values, as a way of thinking about the world. Because if it just strikes you as this is the only way to live or this is the only obvious thing to pursue, then you can get stuck in these value traps. Like a fish in water, you can not realize that you're within this membrane of a culture. And so one of the things that really struck me in reading this book about the Piraha is their immediacy of experience principle. And this uh, is so contrary to how basically all of us live, that we all live very detached from our immediate experience. We accept authority. We accept uh stories and truths that we have not witnessed, nor has anyone telling us witnessed. We accept uh, abstract ideas like money. We accept, accept ideas like mathematics and all these principles. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that our own culture has adapted to our society the same way that perhaps the Paraha has adapted to their own environment. And perhaps in our environment, our culture is better. So the idea isn't that one culture is better than the other, but just to show that so many of these things that we take for granted is the only possible way of viewing the world, the only possible way of viewing our life. Uh, those might just be made up. Those might not actually be true. They might be something that really uh, there are multiple ways of looking at it. So one of the ideas that I just found very interesting is that throughout history, there's this idea that human beings are tied to by our dependency on myths, uh, creation myths, our histories, our religion, um, sciences, philosophies, all of these sort of narrative and historical structures. Indeed, one of the books that we covered recently, which was Sapiens by Yuval Harari, makes this essential argument that what is distinctly human is our ability to make myths, to invent things that are not 
really there as a way of binding our social behavior. And while the Piraha in some ways have this mythology or this mythological structure, this immediacy of experience principle puts pretty sharp limits on what kind of abstract structures you can have. Because if you can only have the abstract structures that you have personally experienced or the person you're talking to has personally experienced, that rules out these ideas like creation myths. It rules out a lot of big religions or big ideas that don't actually interact with our uh, current understanding of words. It removes a lot of these abstract ideas and theorization. Now, my own feelings about the Piraha culture are mixed. I, I don't really feel like after reading this book that I felt they were this, you know, perfect Zen-like culture that has uh, has none of the problems of modern society, which I've seen bandied around in descriptions of them. Um, I think that it's clear that there's both advantages and disadvantages, that they have negatives and positives, they have happy moments and sad moments, they have all the sort of ranges of human experience that we have here. But I think that one of the real benefits of seeing it is to see outside that value trap so that learning about another culture is in a certain way learning about your own culture. Because if you don't see how things could be different, you can't really see what it is that you do and how that becomes uh, aware of itself. So I think that reading books like this and traveling and immersing in other cultures and learning languages can be such a, an important foundation for self-improvement because it is a way of looking in on oneself. Because if you don't have this understanding of difference, it's really impossible to detach your thinking and say, well, well how do I actually do it? How do I think about this? So I think the value of anthropology is there and it's deep, but it's not often at the surface. It's not always something in terms of, well, here's a list of five tips that you can apply this towards. And so I appreciate everyone who decided to uh, push their way through this book because I think that there is a lot of value, but it's probably not going to be the value that you're going to get just immediately after reading, but maybe months or years down the road where you're thinking about what is the essential nature of yourself and your fellow human beings. The third idea I want to talk about just very briefly before we end this discussion for this month's book is what is the relationship between language and culture? And I know that in the book it's presented as perhaps a somewhat esoteric or detail-driven argument between does every language have recursion or does almost every language have recursion it might seem like a linguistic issue that only really troubles a few experts in those fields. But I think that this book also points to the idea that we have language and we have culture. And what is the relationship between the two? And you can see in linguistics all sorts of theories on the spectrum of the relationship being suggested. So one of the theories is that there's no relationship, that the sounds and syntax of a language are purely arbitrary conventions. They just came out by chance and they say nothing of the culture. So for instance, the fact that Mandarin Chinese has tones and English does not is again just coincidence. There's no deeper truth to why Mandarin has tones and why English doesn't. That's just sort of a fact about it. The alternative view is that the structures of the language have a positive causal impact on culture. So for instance, if your language is a certain way, that will result in your culture therefore being a certain way. This is called this often called the safer wharf hypothesis. And it's often presented on the idea that perhaps a culture that does not have a word for uh, a word for blue 
and green, they're the same word, they just have a word grew that's for blue and green, that they don't actually see those colors as being different, that they're the same color for them. And they're not able to really learn that. Or if you have more words or terms for snow, that you can actually see those as being distinct things, whereas I see them as being the same. Now, I am not really a big fan of this hypothesis, but I think Everett provides a compelling account for an alternative direction, namely that there might be some kind of synergy between language and culture, that culture can influence the syntax and uh, phonology of a language. In particular, he suggests this immediacy of experience principle might suggest why the paraha don't have recursion, because recursion depends on this sort of detachment from experience. Of which they don't have. Now, I'm not sure whether this is necessarily the case. If the paraha don't have recursion, it's not necessarily a validation of this principle. But I think it is something interesting to think about. I think that there is probably some truth for the middle ground that our language and culture maybe both influence each other and they maybe form these synergies where the culture maybe causes some changes to the language, either in you know, adding new vocabulary as we often do when we discover new technology or come up with new ideas uh, or we're introduced to new people and we have to interact with them. Or it could also come in the other direction where the particulars of how our language is set up may in the end influence how we conduct things in the language. Now, I know it's an issue of, um, of a written language as opposed to a, a purely uh, spoken language. So, you know, I'm sure there's examples of that as well. But in Mandarin Chinese, I can definitely say that you can see quite a bit of influence from the fact that they have such a peculiar and ornate writing system influencing the uh, spoken language. That in many cases, how the spoken language has evolved in comparison to, say, English is different because of these relationships with the script. Now, what is the point of this? What's the point of the language and culture uh, split? I think it does make a case for what is the relationship to language learning and cultural immersion. Um, if the two are quite tightly intertwined, perhaps it's not really possible to learn a language without also learning the culture. If it's the case that they're completely separate, maybe you could consider learning a culture without learning the language. I think that uh, this debate is not something that I can resolve here, nor can I really say what is the more correct opinion uh, just by looking at it. But reading this book, I think, provides some interesting insights to see what should be the way that you're thinking about this. So just to summarize, I think the big takeaways from this book is, one, language learning through immersion. How did he, how did he immerse himself? How did he get through the process of learning one of the most difficult languages in the world. That alone, I think, is worth uh, reading the book. The second is the value of anthropology, the value of studying other cultures and seeing how other cultures can possibly be. And I think the main value here, beyond just intellectual curiosity, is that it really allows you to provide a mirror up to yourself to show that, you know, there maybe is an alternative way of doing things. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to suggest that the alternative way of doing things is right or even best suited for your situation. But being aware of your values is quite important if you want to be able to either change them or escape them or work around them in situations where they're not really helping you. Finally, what's the relationship between language and culture? And I think this book raises more questions than it answers, but at the same time, I think it provides a lot of interesting food for thought on the question of language and culture. 
So I wanted to thank you for listening to this. Uh, again, this is a new format for me. I'm trying out an experiment where I'm just recording a longer form summary and discussion of the book myself as opposed to inviting a guest for a conversation. But please let me know what you think and whether you would like me to continue this or have guests or just really anything about the book club. Feel free to uh, join in in the Facebook group discussion. I'm happy to discuss it more with you there. Thanks.